Well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study, the portrait of Jesus from the Gospel of John, going chapter by chapter and verse by verse. It's good to see all of you. Don't forget, next Wednesday night, we'll not be meeting during uh, Thanksgiving week, but two weeks from tonight, we will continue. We'll be looking at John chapter 14, two weeks from tonight. Good to see all of you, and this is a good-looking crowd tonight, so just uh, you look good for some reason, so that's good. But uh, those of you joining by live stream, we welcome you as well, and uh, what a joy to, to see each of you and study God's Word together. Let's pray, and we'll begin our study together tonight. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open it, to study it, have the Holy Spirit be our teacher, and give us, Father, the insight that we need. Jesus, I want to thank you that when you were upon this earth, God, you were, you were just such a great example for us. Uh, Lord, you are, are our Savior. You bore our sins, died on the cross, rose powerfully on the third day, and we're just thankful for all that you've done. Now, Lord, tonight as we see another picture of what you've done for us, I pray that we just continue to be more and more like you. Bless to John 13 tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are to the 13th chapter of 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, and, and now the end has begun, and that is the ending of Jesus' life. Last week, you remember, was the triumphal entry into the, the city of Jerusalem for the final time, and remember we talked about last week, one half of John's Gospel centers on only one week of Jesus' life. And so, starting last week in chapter 12 through chapter 21, it's all pretty much one week of his life. Now that we have reached chapter 13, Jesus has about 24 hours left to live. And that's all. So, uh, we'll be looking at chapter 13, starting with the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. John 13, Andrew, Alexander McLaren said, quote, John 13 through 17, the next four chapters we're going to look at, nowhere else is Jesus' speech at one time so simple but so deep. And nowhere in everything that Jesus did do we see the heart of God displayed and unveiled to us more clearly than chapters 13 to 17. So over the course of the next four to five weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, some of the things Jesus said and did that were powerful, and we'll be, uh, we'll be uh, looking at, at those chapters to see that. Now, in these chapters, 13 to 17, the word cosmos appears 40 times. What is cosmos? I mean, it's world. It's the Greek word for world. And so, the very first time begins tonight with the, with the washing of the disciples' feet. So that begins a series of 40 times that Cosmos is used in only four chapters. Now, what's interesting about John is, as we read tonight the foot washing that Jesus had of the disciples, it does not include the Lord's Supper being instituted afterwards. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do. But for some reason, John did not see it necessary that the Lord's Supper being instituted would be recorded. Why is that significant? Well, we still have those denominations that say in order to be saved, it's important to participate in the sacraments. If it was so important, John would have recorded it for us, and he did not. So the Lord's Supper is important because it's an ordinance 
but it is nothing that is necessary for our salvation to participate in. So I think it's important John did not record the Lord's Supper for us. Now, as we get to John chapter 13, John doesn't tell us this, but right before what happened, there was a dispute on the road to Jerusalem by Jesus and his disciples. You may remember, he's walking in front of them. The disciples are walking behind him, as was the custom with the rabbi and his, and his students. And the disciples were arguing back and forth, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who gets to sit on Jesus' right? And who gets to sit on his left? And they're arguing about that when finally James and John's mother came up and said, Jesus, just want to make a little request for my two boys. Would it be possible if one could sit on your right and one on the left when it comes into your kingdom? And Jesus said, you guys have no clue. And they didn't. So here's what happened as soon as they got there, after all of the arguing stopped. Let's look at chapter 13, letter A on your outline. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, verses 1 through 20. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, that would mean one day, before actual Passover. We know it wasn't a Passover meal because verse 23 tells us they were reclining. They would not have reclined at such a special meal. So it was one day before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come. So in other words, he knew that it was time for him to die, to depart out of this world of the Father, verse 1, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What do you mean by loving them to the end? The end of his life? Possible. Loving them to the fullest he could love them? Possible. But notice John does not use the word cross. Did you notice that? All of the description, verses 1 through 3... He's getting around, he's, he knows his hours come, he's departing out of this world, he, he's going to the Father, he's loved his disciples, but he never mentions straight out he's dying on the cross. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and they had come from God and was going back to God, he still doesn't use the word cross. He still doesn't use the word die. He still doesn't use the word crucified. He's getting around it. Verse 4, after the meal, Jesus, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now remember, John is writing this 55 years after it happened. He wrote in 85 A.D. Jesus died 30 A.D. So it's, 50, it's been 55 years, but he's giving us details like he remembers every single detail like it happened yesterday. And he said Jesus got up from the meal. He he, he tied his, uh, he laid aside his outer garments. You'd had an outer garment, an inner garment. He laid aside the outer garments, almost as if Jesus is laying aside his glory and laying aside his majesty. 
so he can be a servant. Philippians 2 tells us he did that, you know. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the great kenosis passage tells us that Jesus coming from heaven laid aside Godhead so he could become one of us. And here he's laying aside his garments like he's laying aside his glory and his majesty so he can serve the disciples as a servant. He took a towel, tied it around his waist. Then verse 5, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, if you remember last week, this was a custom when you went into a, a person's house. There would be a servant meet you at the door. You had open-toed sandals that you wore. The roads were dusty, and so your feet would be a mess. It was hot. They'd be sweaty. Uh, it'd be dusty. So you just kind of, your feet are gross. And so a servant then would take your sandals off and would towel off and wash your feet with a basin of water, towel them off, put a little, dab a little perfume on you so the sweatiness wouldn't smell. And you could have an evening with someone in their home. And, and this was custom. So as Jesus and the disciples were having their meal, why did no servant meet them? Because they were in a secret location in an upper room. Remember, this took place in the upper room. Now, those of you who've been to Israel with us know that the upper room where they think that this took place, we go there, we have a devotion there, we read this passage there in the location where most likely it happened. If you remember, it is directly above where King David is buried. Remember that? So, wait a minute, it's right above David's tomb? Very possible if those are the exact locations. So, they were in an upper room and they're in a secret location. Most, whose room was it? Well, most theologians think that so there was a wealthy, wealthy man who lived in Jerusalem. You can look at the room and it's kind of being recreated what it was like. It would have been a very wealthy person's house if it were in a room like this, very ornate. Uh, and so, most likely, it was someone sympathetic to Jesus' cause who was a wealthy man who lived in Jerusalem who loaned them the room for Passover. So, Jesus got up. It was an extreme act that he did. Got up. I, nobody said anything. Finally, Peter spoke in a little bit. But the disciples have been silent watching what's happening. So, I can imagine them... Jesus taking off the outer garments, putting on the towel, pouring a basin of water, and all the eyes are on him going, no, he's, he's not going to do that, is he? Servants do that, but he's no servant. He's, he's the Messiah. He's not going to do that. Why would he do that? They didn't say anything, but that had to be going through their minds. He's not going there, is he? Yes, he is. Now, whenever I was a, a boy and I had this pictured, I had it pictured like the disciples are, you know, kind of like Da Vinci's painting, you know. And, 
and they're all lined up in a row and they're sitting on a chair and, and their feet are maybe elevated off, off the ground a little bit. And Jesus, you know, has to stoop down just a little bit, but not much and wash their feet and put them in a basin, gets a towel, moves the basin over and washes them. And I kind of had it pictured that way, but that's not the way it was. It was more awkward than that. The picture that we're told in 13, chapter 13, describes they're eating a meal around couches. So that means they would have been low and, and the table they, they ate on would have been more like a coffee table to us that sat very low. So their feet would have been under like a coffee table, very low to the ground. He would have had to almost lay flat to reach their feet. He didn't just have to stoop just a little. He had to pretty well go belly down on the ground to reach their feet. Smelly, dirty, and they're probably going, what is he doing lying there? He's Messiah. It bothered them. And Peter was the only one who had enough courage to say, no, nope, nope, not me, Lord. You're not washing my feet. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I'm doing, you do not understand. But afterward, you will. In other words, after the cross, after the resurrection, you will. And Peter said to him, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. There cannot be in the Greek syntax a stronger objection worded in, in, in the Greek language. Peter was mad. Peter was emphatic. You're not washing my feet. He was angry. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. You see, in our culture, how people ask how many people work for you, and that's a status of importance. If you have 50 people working for you, that's pretty important. If you have 150 working for you, that's even better. You're even more important. If you have 1,000 people working under you, you're really important. So the more people that work for you, the, the greater you are. But in the kingdom, the question is, how many people do you work for? And that shows how great you are. If you work for 150, if you serve us 150, that's good. If you serve 500, it's better. If you serve 1,000, that's even better. It's reversed. Our culture and God's kingdom and Jesus said, you want to be great. You want to talk about who gets to sit on my right and my left. Right, where, where's your mom? Bring your mom over here. She may want to ask me again. You want to be great in my kingdom. You go belly down and serve. When it's awkward, when it's dirty, when it's messy, those are the greatest in my kingdom. 
Now, because of what Jesus did, there are some denominations that feel like we still need to do foot washing today. So there are some denominations, a part of every Sunday service, they have foot washing. The Grace Brethren does it, the Mennonites do it. Uh, There are others that every Sunday there's a foot washing service. And it almost became a part of who we are as Baptists. Did you know that? In fact, the ordinances in the Baptist church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, there's almost a third one in church history when Baptists started in the Anabaptist movement. um, Their foot washing was the third ordinance. And it almost stuck. But it didn't because we're never commanded in Scripture to wash feet as a part of a worship service. We're to serve. But foot washing was never given as an ordinance. 1 Timothy 5.10 says it's an act of humble servitude, but never says it's an ordinance of the church. So because of that, Baptists did not include it as the third ordinance, but it was close. We <laughs> We almost did. We almost had to wash each other's feet every Sunday. But we do still serve. Notice in verse 11, Jesus told him, you, you, he knew who's going to betray him, and that's why he said not all of you are clean. He's talking about Judas, and we're going to see that in a moment. Look at verse 12 first. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place... He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? They didn't. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, back in biblical days, foot washing was such a menial task that even a rabbi could not ask his students to do that. Students never asked the rabbi to wash their feet. That's unheard of. And students couldn't even ask, the rabbis couldn't ask students to do it. But here, Jesus turned it to where the rabbi willingly washed theirs And that's why he said, verse 15, for I have left you an example. He uses the word hypodigmai in Greek. It means a pattern. What you saw in me, you need to go do. That you do just as I have done to you. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That phrase is called an aphoristic in Greek. It literally means it's a principle that that you need to take and and employ as your own. So what he was saying was, folks, what you saw me do, you need to be serving like that. You need to be like that. In verse 17, "If if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I've chosen, but that the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Folks, he's starting to talk about Judas. Now, here's my question. As he's washing the disciples' feet, did Jesus wash Judas' feet? 
Yes. Had that been me, I'd have probably said, I'd come to Judas and, okay, buddy, I know what you're about to do. You got a little side deal going on you don't think anybody knows about, but I know about it. And the side deal is, you're wanting some money to sell me out. I know what's going on. And I'd probably passed him up and gone on. I'm on my, I'm on my hands and knees anyway. But he washed the feet of Judas, knowing he was betraying him. And even in the process right then, do we serve those that deliberately do things against us? Yes. How many times have I heard, a preacher, they, they, they've hurt me too deep. I can't, even, I can't even speak to them. Speak to them. You're supposed to wash their feet. Even if they've done things to you and hurt you, that's the example he set for us. Now, notice in verse 18, he, Jesus said, He is the one who has lifted his heel against me. It's describing Judas. And the picture lifting the heel against me was the picture of a horse lifting his back leg just about to strike. To kick at you. It's the picture. Now, this may surprise you, but I'm not the horse person in our family. But I know that if you're walking back behind them and you see that back leg lift up, you better watch it. And that's the picture. Judas has lifted up his leg and he's about to kick. And he just dipped in the food and ate with me. Back in, um, in the Near East, eating with someone was the closest act of fellowship. Now, that's not our culture. You can eat with somebody and just know them casually. That's no big deal. Have Go to lunch with a group of people and you may not even know all of them. It's not a big deal. But in the Near East, you didn't eat with anybody unless it was, that implied close fellowship like you agreed with them. And so the most egregious act of betrayal anybody could ever do in the Near East was share a meal with somebody, then turn around and backstab them. That was the worst. That was the ultimate. And so Judas just shared the meal with Jesus all the time. It already had a back deal going with the religious leaders, 30 pieces of silver. And it was happening, but eating with him at the same time. And Jesus called him out. Verse 19. I'm telling you this now because before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So did Jesus know what Judas would become when he chose him? Some theologians say yes. Some theologians say no. That in his humanity, he limited his knowledge enough that he did not know what would happen. He did later, but not at first. I believe that he did know. And he chose Judas in order to fulfill Psalm 41 verse 9. 41.9 was a description of David's best friend, Ahithophel, 
who betrayed him and how much that hurt when a best friend betrayed him. It was Ahithophel who did that. By the way, Ahithophel, after he betrayed David, committed suicide. Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. He was fulfilling Psalm 41, 9. Go to letter B now in your outline, uh, chapter 13, verses 21 to 30. One of you will betray me. After saying these things, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, remember last week I talked about that the disciples did not know that Judas was a thief. They did not know Judas was making the back deal. They didn't know Judas was going to betray Jesus. They didn't know. So Judas was such a good hypocrite. Even his best friends didn't know. Because nobody went, oh, it's Judas. Whenever Jesus said, one of you betrayed me, I know who it is. They all looked at each other and went, Lord, is it, is it I? Matthew records that. Is it I? Verse 23, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. Now, hold on for a second. Who is the disciple Jesus loved? was John, the writer of the gospel. It was his way of saying, I was there, but he didn't want to give his name. Why didn't he want to give his name? It's been 55 years. The authorities aren't after him. He didn't want to give his name because he wanted all the attention to go to Jesus. And by omitting his own name in his own gospel made the name Jesus more forceful every time he, he wrote it and spoke it. So he just called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He loved me like he loved the others. I'm just one Jesus loved. So verse 23, one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. So we know John was right beside him. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Here's a picture. Gee, all the disciples were there. It's not like Da Vinci's all in a row. Uh, and the, the table arrangement's even different than Da Vinci's, the painting of the Last Supper. Most likely they weren't in a row like that. Most likely they were in a round. And so Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And it got quiet. They're wondering who it is. John is right next to Jesus. And Peter wasn't. Peter was over here. So Peter motions to John. Hey, Ask him who it is. So that disciple, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, may be whispering to him, Lord, who is it? So John's right here, leans back. Remember, they're reclining on couches. Leans back probably on Jesus' chest. Jesus, who are you talking about? Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will... Give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. Here's a picture. Back in that biblical days, and it was custom 
that whenever you would invite a host would, would, would host a meal in his home. And if there was a particular guest they were honoring, this is how they honored them. They would take some unleavened bread, and it is very public, and they would dip it in the Paschal stew, and they would hand it to the honored guest, and the guest would eat it first, and then everybody would eat. We have a custom that's similar. If you're a host and you have the preacher or somebody over for a meal, you will usually serve me first or serve your guest first. And as soon as I take a bite, then you do as well. That's our custom. Their custom was take some unleavened bread, dip it in the Paschal stew, and give it to the guest of honor, the one you're honoring on the evening. Jesus took the bread, dipped it in the stew, and handed it to Judas, the honored guest. Verse 26, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Now, we know John's on one side. It did not say he had to pass it around to Judas. It did not say he had to get up and go give it to Judas. It said that he just gave it to him. Was Judas on the other side? He had to be close. Verse 27. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. The only time the name Satan is mentioned in the Gospel of John. The only time he's called by name. And it did not say he possessed him. It says he entered him. And the passive is used, which meant Judas had given permission for Satan to enter him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. They're probably scratching their heads going, what just happened? But after Judas betrayed, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, this made perfect sense. Verse 29. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Now look at the next phrase, verse 30, and it was night. Why did John say that? Of course it's night. It's a supper. Why did he specifically say, and it was night? Because all through Scripture, night is symbolic of darkness and evil. And light and day is symbolic of good. That's why Jesus said that I am the light of the world and you're of your, of your father, the devil, who you love darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil. And all the way through, really all the Old Testament as well, you have a motif of day and night, good and evil, and, and you see it again. And it was night, not just because it was physically dark outside, but because the evil one was at work. And it was night. John's telling us Satan 
was at work. And then look at letter C on your outline, a new commandment, verses 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Twelve times in uh, the Gospel of John, the phrase Son of Man is used, and this is the last one of them. Jesus said, the Son of Man's glorified, and God is glorified in him. In other words, the devil is now at work to bring about my death, and God is glorified in that. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The death would happen, the resurrection would come. Verse 33, Jesus said, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. It's the only time in the Gospel of John the phrase little children. It's the Greek word technon. The only time technon is used in all four Gospels. But John uses that word technon seven times in 1 John. So it it was a phrase to John that, that captured the compassionate spirit of Jesus. That should be a part of who we are. Little children, verse 33, yet a little while and I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What was he talking about? Heaven? Of course we can go to heaven. We're talking about heaven. He was talking about a sacrificial death for the sins of the world. You can't do that. Only I can do that. You can't pay for sins. You can't pay for your own sins. Only I can pay for sins. Where I'm going, you can't come. And then look at verse uh, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Another. Okay, now hold, hold on. Time out. He said, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. It wasn't a new commandment. It was Leviticus 19.18 in the Old Testament. It was an old commandment. What's he talking about? But there's one phrase in there that's not in Leviticus. That's right here. That's what he's talking about. Let me read it again. New commandment I give you that you love one another... That's the Old Testament command, but Jesus adds one more phrase. Do you see it? As I have loved you. The Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 18 says, love one another. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you, which means love each other enough to die for each other. That's the kind of love you're now to have. Love one another enough to die for them. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Doesn't matter what country you're in, you see the golden arches, what do you think of? McDonald's. Doesn't matter if you know Hebrew or whatever in Israel, it's written in Hebrew. You don't have to read Hebrew to know it's McDonald's. You see the logo. 
Where you are around the world, you see Coca-Cola. You don't have to read that language. You know what the Coke logo is. It's how they're known. So how do you tell in any language if somebody's a Christian? Simple. You have a logo. And your logo is you love passionately. You love people that don't like you. You love Judas, who's going to betray you. You love when you shouldn't love. You love when people hate you. It's your logo. They don't even need you to say, oh, I go to First Baptist Garland. They don't even need you to say, oh, I'm a Christian. They don't even need to say, you to say anything. Your logo, by the way you love he says, it's proof you're a Christian. Now, I got a question for you. Do you love like that? Do you love people that you don't agree with? Do you love Democrats like that? Do you love Republicans like that? Do you love people that don't like you like that? It's your logo, it's how you're known. And so, he didn't say they'll know you're a Christian when you tell them. They'll know you're a Christian when you back your car out every Wednesday night and you go to church. They'll know you're a Christian when every Sunday morning you're going to church and you're dressed up. They'll know you're a Christian whenever you got a Sunday school class. They'll know you're a Christian when you love them when they don't deserve it. And then finally, letter D, verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you always see Simon Peter speaking up whenever he shouldn't be, doing. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow afterwards. In other words, where I'm going right now is to, to my death. You're not going there right now, but you will. And he did. In fact, whenever he died, they wanted to crucify him. And he says, I'm not, not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. You crucify me upside down. And they did. He did follow the Lord. Not then, but later. And Peter said in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Careful what you say. And Jesus answered, verse 38, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, how long before this to take place? Well, we're under 24 hours now before Jesus died. Just a few hours. So here's a man so... So convinced that he, will, he would go to, to die for Christ that in just a few hours later, deny three times he even knows, and cursed one time, three times that he even knew him. The great New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said, quote, Good intentions are one thing whenever you're in a secure room following a good meal. But they're quite different when you're in a darkened garden with a hostile mob all around you. Good intentions can turn bad. 
And that's exactly what happened to Peter. Now we're getting close. The cross is just ahead. Questions or comments about chapter 13 tonight? Anything you want to ask about or hear the microphones? If you go to those so those can hear also on, the, on our live stream. Charlie, make your way up to the microphone here. Charlie, he always has something good for me. Two things. Okay, good. You mentioned uh, John having a good memory 50 years after it happened, but the Bible says that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's exactly right. And they wrote, so he had a little help. Oh, he had memory. a lot of help. Holy Spirit brought it to him as he wrote, absolutely. The Bible says, Jesus said, as I have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. I ain't saying I want to wash your feet, Pastor, but it sounds like that he's telling us that we ought to do what he done. Good question. That's, the question was, should we, did he mean it physically or, or did he mean it literally? That's a good question, because if you look in their day, I mean, does, did he mean, and, and a lot of them take that to mean physically, Grace Brethren, the Mennonites, that, that, that's a part of every Sunday. I mean, we literally ought to be washing feet. If you look later on as, as, as the disciples interpreted what Jesus meant in their epistles, the, the most menial task you could have, the, the worst task you'd have that day was washing somebody's feet, because the, the, the days were, I mean, just the, the roads were so horrible, and it was such a menial task. And so I, they, the disciples interpreted it later on as saying it didn't mean it in a physical sense, sense meant in a literal sense. So today we would apply that not necessarily by getting down and, and scrubbing your feet physically, but how can I serve you in the most, the most menial person out there? I need to be a servant to them. So that's a great question, though. But Thank you. Is it literal or is it physical? Me. That's a good question. Anyone else? Yes. So the meal had started then with Yes. It's a great question. A good question. And the question was, you know, it, the meal already started. We know that. Yeah, and, and that's listed in the passage. Was Jesus waiting because nobody had washed their feet? They were sitting there with grimy feet and you didn't do that in the house. Was he waiting to see if one of them would do it? Very possible. I mean, he had already taught them to be, to be servants. It wasn't the first time he had laid the servanthood motif on them. So very possible. Could have been watching. Have you been listening to what I've been saying? If not, I, your master, will stick to do it. Good question. Could have. Any others? All right. Well, that's all I know about John 13. So we will pick up with John 14 in two weeks. And we'll continue as Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, you're a good God and I thank you that in Christ you stoop down to, to where we are. And once you stoop down to where we are, you stoop down even further to become a servant of ours. And so, Lord, may we in turn love the way you loved and may we serve the way you served even this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.